welcome to brand new podcast here on BaronGrip.com. We are here with Kasim Rashid. Thank you, he's a Democratic candidate running in Virginia's first district, America's first district. Great to have you on, Kasim. Great to be here, man. Good to see you, man. How are you guys doing? We're doing well. I'm, I'm excited. Um, you're the third Democratic candidate to take a bite at coming on a conservative podcast. I know. We were like, people are going to, people are going to, you know. Spreading, you know, you know, I, for me, this is all about finding ways to build bridges. This is what I've done my whole career uh, in human rights work, in international religious freedom work. You know, you, you got to find ways to work together. And that's really uh, why when this opportunity came up, I jumped at it because I thought, what better way uh, to to continue the work I've been doing than, you know, talk to the folks who are who are the uh, respected, esteemed uh, voices in this space. So it's a privilege to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. I don't know about respected, but we'll take the we'll word. Yeah, we'll <laughs> hopefully one day. Um, Kasim, let uh tell tell our listeners and and viewers a little bit about yourself. Um, you're a lawyer and you work in human rights, correct? Yeah, yeah. No, so my 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 story is actually very American. I, I would argue it's, I'm an immigrant to this country, um, like many of our uh, you know founding fathers were. And uh, for any of us who trace the roots back, you find an immigrant uh, ancestor who came over. And so I was fortunate to immigrate here when I was about four years old, uh, the age of uh, my wife Aisha and I's youngest daughter, uh, Hana, right now. And we, you know, we left Pakistan uh, in significant part to escape religious persecution, uh, pursuing what our constitution you know, calls that promise of equal justice, something very uh, critical and important to us. And, uh, you know, our parents are teachers. I, I know Mike, you're a teacher. So, yeah. um, you know, to anyone who's had a teacher like Mike or, or like my parents, you know, that when you have good teachers, they push you to do more and be better. And that's what our parents did. It wasn't about becoming a wallflower. It was about being involved and engaged. And the, the overriding message that I can always remember from my childhood was your purpose here is to serve humanity, to serve your community. This is your country. This is your home. Uh, and you have to serve. And now let me be clear. It wasn't always easy. You know, when my brother was uh, a U.S. Marine, when he enlisted in the U.S. Marines, we were a military family. Uh, but like one in five military families in Virginia today, we were living off food stamps. Uh, we were in Section 8 housing. I've been working since I was 15 years old. Um, but, you know, blessings of the Almighty, of this country, friends and family, we emerged from that. All three of my siblings are successful in the business world. Uh, I'm a human rights lawyer, and that's really where, you know, at Richmond Law, go spiders. Any spiders that, that listen to you guys? I, you guys have I'm, sure, I'm sure there are. I'm a Duke, and Matt's an honorary hokey, so. Okay. And, and Matt, I know, you, I know you're like a hardcore hokey, which I, I, I deeply respect. I've got a funny story about Virginia Tech I'll share later, too. I, I love Virginia Tech stories. I, I met my wife there. Um, so I, I got, I married into this, uh, mess called Virginia Tech. Um, but you know, I, I think it's great that you've got this kind of all American story and then you want to run for Congress. That's something that's always interesting, Republican or Democrat. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. You know, so at Richmond law is, is where I, I really kind of found my love for human rights work with my, my wife, Aisha convinced me to go to law school. Um, started working pro bono at the Virginia poverty law center, their office of domestic and sexual violence. I uh, was on the board for Virginia Center for Inclusive Communities, you know, combat you know, school bullying, um, uh, several other, you know, Virginia-based nonprofits, and then some nonprofits nationally and inter internationally working on these things of wealth and income inequality and uh, combating racial injustice and criminal justice reform. 
Um, and, you know, the two things I learned from that are, are really kind of defining why I'm running for office. One is you realize just how many of these problems impact us across the board, right? Poverty doesn't care if you're Republican or Democrat, you know, domestic violence, the opioid epidemic, it hits all of us. And so it's probably pretty important that we remember we are the United States of America and work together to resolve these issues. Um, and the second part of it was really, there are just some systemic unjust uh, you know, uh, programs that we have, um, broken systems we have that really need repair. And, and I believe that um, my work as a human rights lawyer um, who, who has worked you know, across party lines, one of, the, one of the things that I really cherish is the work I've done on religious freedom issues, um, testifying before the US Commission on International Religious Freedom on the plight of Christians persecuted for their faith in Pakistan. Um, you know, I had the privilege of uh, having a private tour of the Holocaust Museum as a guest of Ambassador Sam Brownback. Uh, absolute distinction. I was invited by the Trump administration, by the Trump White House, um, to the State Department Religious Freedom Ministerial, where I got to speak in front of about 80 heads of state on the importance of religious freedom. And so, you know, I cherish these things because I, I see them as opportunities for us to remember how much we really have in common. And my run for office is really just to take the work I've been doing uh, bringing communities together uh, and making a people-powered campaign uh, kind of the, the calling card of what we're doing. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully we have a victory on November 3rd, but we're going to do it the right way. And that's by bringing people together. Kasim, I, I'm actually glad you, you know, you emphasize that your whole career has kind of been about bringing people together. You know, I think a lot about where we are right now as a nation. Uh, we're very, very divided. Americans don't even shop at the same places. We don't even eat at the same places yeah. anymore. You know, if you shop at Walmart, chances are you're conservative. If you shop at Whole Foods, chances are you're Democrat. That's not how it should be. Um, and we are so divided down the middle. And I think what's emerged when you talked about a lot of the systems being broken, I actually would argue that Trump voters and Bernie voters were really the ones that they're almost two sides of the same coin. I think both of them tapped into this, wait, the establishment hasn't been working for us. The establishment is leaving people behind. The establishment isn't getting us ahead. A lot of us haven't had raises in years, especially Matt comes from Southwest Virginia. I'm in Northern Virginia. There's so many inequities between those two regions. In yeah. So how can you, and the first district embodies that. There's, uh, you have the rural uh, parts of the first, and then, you know, there's, you know, there's also um, the Northeast Corridor in your district. So it's almost a microcosm yeah. of the country. How can you bring, whether you're a Trump voter, a Bernie voter, how can we just come together? Well, I think it, it, it begins with the work, you know, I, I fall back on the work I've done on, on human rights law. You know, I, I often think about Shabazz Bhatti, a name that some of your viewers uh, may know. He was the, um, the only Christian uh, federal minister in Pakistan, and he was assassinated for being Christian. And he knew that his life was at risk every single time he went up, but he did it anyway. And, and I had the privilege of testifying with his brother, Peter, uh, before the U.S. Commission on the persecution of uh, Christians uh, and other faith minorities in Pakistan. And, and what... I learned from that was that really when it comes down to it, all of us want to make sure our kids have a better future than we do, right? Everybody wants to make sure that there's 
you know, food on the table, clothes on our back and a roof over our head. And so whenever I have an opportunity to, to have these kinds of conversations and these dialogues, I keep them open. And, and I don't care if they're Trump supporters or they're Bernie supporters. You know, for me, this is really about recognizing that humanity in people and meeting people where they are. I think that's a key thing that we've always forgotten that, you know, we got to meet people where they are because, you know, when people know better, they do better. But when people don't know something, they're going to act on what they think is, is true and honest. And for me, I, I'm always willing to have that conversation and that dialogue. It served me extraordinarily well. And it, it gives me peace of mind knowing that at the end of the day, uh, my contribution is going to be to try to find ways to build bridges of understanding. And that's why I, I have childhood friends that are, you know, strong uh, Republicans, strong Trump supporters, but we can still get along and have a healthy conversation and, and break bread together uh, because we see the humanity in one another. And, and so that's what I try to focus on. Well, I want to, I want to really hone in on an issue here. So we've got, you want to talk about poverty and especially in rural communities and which is something very near to my heart because we see what we've tried for so long in rural Virginia to just like wait for either the private sector or government and both have pretty much failed yeah. in, in one way or another because you know we've looked at what Johnson's Great Society program we actually know that the first welfare recipient was a coal miner in Appalachia and, and that, and Appalachia still broke, they're addicted to drugs, and they've got problems. And what always happens, and what I notice, especially Republicans are guilty of this more than anybody, but Democrats do it too. They say, oh, we can just throw out high tech jobs in Southwest Virginia, or in the Northern Neck out in your district. And so my question is, what do we do to build equity in rural Virginia where there are such a lack of educational resources, healthcare resources, and, and how do we, you know, government's not always the answer and the private sector is not always the answer. So how do we, I know that's a very tough question to get started yeah. with, but. Yeah, I, I think it's a really important question that, and it's something that I've thought about long and hard in, in the work that I do in providing support to nonprofits who are building schools and hospitals in these impoverished parts of the world. And, you know, my understanding of, of the U.S. Constitution is that every word there was very deliberately chosen. And when we talk about, you know, provide for the common defense and promote the general welfare, these aren't suggestions. They're not like options that we should maybe think about. They're obligations of those who are elected to serve us. Um, I'm, I don't think government's the answer for everything either, but I do believe that our, our elected officials have a level of accountability to us that they need to fulfill. They need to fulfill to we the people. And, and that's not being done right now. And I'll give you an example. Broadband internet is something near and dear to my heart, especially now um, as I have uh, two, my, our, our two older children are in school. Fortunately, we live in a place where we have uh, broadband access. Many of the friends of our children don't. And we're seeing that struggle. And this is not only a struggle from a uh, you know rural uh, part here in the first district, but throughout the entire Commonwealth throughout the country. Um, we are 25th in the world in broadband internet access. We are by far the most powerful country, by far the most money, the most resources, but we are 25th in the world. And the reason for that, I believe, 
is because we have elected people who are more accountable to corporations than they are to we the people. And I don't see this as a Republican versus Democrat issue. I see this as who's fighting for working people versus who's fighting for corporations and stock options. Um, I don't even own any stock, right? I mean, this is about, you know, and, <laughs> and, and, and I see you guys nodding along here. So I think you, you feel what I'm trying to say here. And so for me, something like broadband needs to be a utility. It's like electricity. It's like water. Uh, you know, water became a utility when coal miners said, hey, we are dying here. We need water. And, and there was no private option to make it affordable. So it became a utility. Uh, broadband has to be the same way. It's impacting our education. It's impacting our telehealth. It's impacting our small businesses, which are the backbone of our society. It's impacting our farmers. You know, farm bankruptcies went up 140% this year. So when I think about, you know, Matt, your question about Appalachia, I think you have to start by saying, we need to make sure every single person has basic access to things like water and food and healthcare. And yes, in 2020, broadband. If we can't even guarantee those basic things, right? Private enterprise is not going to be the solution on these situations because their goal is to make money. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But if we really want them to make money, let's build the infrastructure so that money can be made, not just by major corporations, but by the small businesses who are the backbone of our society. Okay. I, I like where you're coming from, especially because we understand now that broadband may not be the silver bullet to make everyone equal, but it'll certainly help people in rural communities grow. And so I think that's, I think that's one important issue. One of the things I wanted to talk to you also about is the fact that we have, we have a healthcare system that's broken. I don't think anybody can agree or disagree about that. So what's your, what's your thoughts on, you know, what's your thoughts on a public option, a private option? What, where are you at on the healthcare debate? And because I want to hear more of your perspective on healthcare. No, healthcare is extraordinarily important to me. I just yesterday, I was at a event at a meet and greet, uh, young man, 30 years old, 31 years old. Um, fortunately he has good healthcare coverage, but he got cancer. And the out-of-pocket cost, even though he has good health care, was just astronomical. And he's like, you know, I make good money, so I can afford this. But I can't imagine what would happen to someone who doesn't make the kind of money I do, even with uh, really good private health insurance. Um, and there's a reason why 70,000 Americans a year die waiting for health care, 550,000 file for bankruptcy. You know, I don't want to get stat heavy, but, you know, half a million Americans file bankruptcy because they can't, because they got sick like as if that's a crime, it's just not fair. So I, I, I believe that, um, here's why I support the, the Medicare for all model, um, because of a couple of reasons. One, it's more affordable. There's a recent study published by Yale University in the Lancet, which is um, a really uh, important uh, publication that showed that it'll save about $450 billion a year. And so if you're a fiscal conservative, that should appeal to you. Um, the second reason is that it gives us more individual liberty. Uh, right now, if you want to quit your job and go to a different job, uh, then you probably have to switch your doctor because it's a different insurance company, different provider. You've got to reset everything. And if you have kids like we do, it's a nightmare because the last thing you want to do is change your kid's doctor. But let's say you don't even want to go to a different company. Let's say, Mike, let's say you want to you, you quit your job as a teacher and, and start your own consulting firm, uh, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit. Well, 
if you don't have healthcare right away, what are you going to do? Uh, and so by having a single pair system, not only is it more affordable um, and more accessible, but you, you actually have more freedom because you can do your own, your own small business, your own startup. Um, but I think at the end of the day, this really comes down to a moral question. Uh, and, and that is that, you know, are we okay with people dying because they can't get basic access? Are, are we okay with people being financially ruined because they've committed the crime of, of getting, you know, cancer that they couldn't, that they had no control over? Um, and I think the best part about this is that we don't even need to look at other countries and see what they're doing. We already have an infrastructure built out. I mean, the, the, we already have Medicare, right? The system already exists and we already know that it works. Uh, the military folks have TRICARE, it's government provided healthcare. Um, and, and while I think the ACA was a step in the right direction, you're not gonna find me you know, dying on the ACA hill and saying this is the be all end all. I think we all agree it, it could improve uh, immensely. Um, my, my frustration is that over the last 11 years, um, you know, whereas we could have been improving it, all we've done is vote you know, 40 plus times to try to repeal it without a replacement. And I just think that's unfair. I mean, to repeal it without even a replacement, I mean, come on guys, 20 million people you're gonna throw off healthcare, especially during a pandemic. You know, again, I don't see this as a Republican versus Democrat issue. I see this as just a basic moral issue. We, we can't do that to people. And, and again, you know, Mike and, and Matt, I see you guys nodding along. It seems like you guys agree that this is really, you know, we gotta provide the support to our communities for, to be sure that they can thrive. For, for sure, it's, it's definitely, I think, and I think it's really hard because on one hand, I think we all agree. Should everyone have access to healthcare? Yes. Should everyone not lose their job or go bankrupt? Yes. Are people in Appalachia hit harder than others on this issue? Absolutely. I think my fear, even Matt's fear, uh, a lot of voters fear is um, I would be worried about overwhelming the system with Medicare, right? Um, I agree with that statement. Also, if, if, that's over, if, if that's overwhelmed, what happens to, for example, our neighbors to the north in Canada, they have universal health care, but then there's waiting lines and everything else. So it's like Medicare, while it's great, I think the only um, skepticism, right, is that how do we basically keep it Medicare? And this is a very complicated question. Obviously, no one solved it yeah. yet. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, but the pocket, it's okay to talk about this. Yeah. If, if our Medicare system works, how does it then not become the VA where the VA, there's waiting lines and uh, yeah. the care is not as great for our vets. And then, you know, I'm, I'm kind of with Mike there. It, it's also, for me, it's, it's one of those price tag issues that I think that, you know, I, I have a real concern of actually, you know, how would we actually quantify, you know, I've seen numbers that it could be 30 to 30 some trillion dollars. And that's, that's where I, uh, that's where well, I get to it's like, we want to, we want to all come together, but it's yeah. like, but what? these are the questions guys, this is brilliant. These are the questions that I want to be ha you know, talking about. So, you know, as far as wait lines go, look, um, I already mentioned 70,000 Americans a year die waiting for healthcare in this country because they can't afford it. Um, if you look at life expectancy of, of Canada versus ours, Canada has a higher life expectancy. If you look at infant mortality or maternal mortality, they have fewer infant deaths per capita and fewer women die uh, while, uh, uh, while giving birth per capita than us. Um, and a lot of that has to do with more access. We have to remember, it's not just about when you have, you know, God forbid, a heart attack, you need to get access. It's about preventative care. I, I was at the Rappahannock Clinic 
uh, a hospital, I'm sorry, uh, a few weeks ago. And the, the chief physician said to me that the, the cost of not having preventative health care in this country is astronomical. I can't even quantify it. Um, a, a man died in my arms because he had a toothache a few months ago, but he didn't have any dental coverage, so he couldn't get it checked out. And by the time he was rushed to the ER, it had become infected and had reached his brain, and there was nothing we could do at that point. From a toothache, this guy died, right? Now, the cost of that is you can't really quantify that. But when you talk about, you know, Matt, you mentioned this number of $32 trillion over the next 10 years. I've heard this number a lot. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shock you guys maybe by saying that, yeah, I agree. That's actually a pretty accurate number. Um, but here's the part that people don't include with that number. And I want to be careful not to get too data heavy because I know it can get a little bit policy wonkish. But we actually that, like that. It's okay. We like okay. the numbers. Please, please, keep, please keep it up with the numbers. <laughs> okay, good, good. Because it's a Koch brother study that actually cites $32 trillion. And, and I think that data checks out. And so the 32 trillion would basically cover every single person in the country. There'd be no co-pays, no deductibles, and you'd have full access, right? Sounds great. But 32 trillion sounds like a lot of money. Well, the same study, same exact same study said, by the way, if we keep the current model, where only about 85% of people are covered and you have you know, co-pays and deductibles and all this stuff, it would cost about $34 trillion. And so people cite the first half of the study and then they're like, oh my God, that's a lot of money. And you're like, yeah, it is, uh, but it's full coverage. And then they forget the second half of the exact same study that says the status quo, which gives less coverage is gonna actually be even more expensive. And that's the point I wanna make about preventative healthcare. If we can help people get to a doctor and get checked out before they have a stroke or a heart attack, that is going to help prevent overwhelming the system. If we, can, if we can have people during a pandemic get mass free testing without worrying about whether they can afford it or not, that's gonna prevent the pandemic from spreading, right? I mean, we've spent, God, $8 trillion. I don't even know what the number is anymore this year in trying to get ahead of this pandemic. And we still are in a completely, you know, this is PG, rated PG, right? So I won't use the word, but it, it, it's okay if you want to let one fly. My, my, if you want to let wife, one fly, we've we've let an F word fly here or there before. My, my wife will yell at me, so I can't. But okay. you get the picture, right? And so, so a lot of it is 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 I think is is looking at the preventative cost. And and I think the last really big point about uh, the Medicare for all system is that right now we're paying you know sixteen to eighteen percent uh, markups and premiums and overhead for executive bonuses, executive salaries, you know, all these, you know, overhead at, at, at corporations, that doesn't actually provide us any healthcare. The actual Medicare model that we have that works has about a one or 2% overhead. And, and what's exciting is that, is that the folks that, that may lose their jobs if we move to a Medicare for all system, this, this Yale study showed that we would save so much money that you could give every single person who didn't transition to work in the Medicare infrastructure, you can give every single person a two year salary in one lump sum and get them trained for a new job as well. So it wouldn't even be kicking people to the curb. It would be transitioning them with a healthy two year salary and getting them the training to get into a new industry or to a new job or, or shift to Medicare. So for those reasons, I, I support that. Um, and, and, and ultimately it comes down to, I don't want a parent or somebody who has cancer to not get treatment because they couldn't afford it. I just think that in the wealthiest country in the world, 
we, we're better than that. We need to promote the general welfare the same way we provide for the common defense uh, and treat it as a matter of life and death, because it is. Well, um, go ahead, Matt. I wanted to ask you specifically, we had um, your opponent, incumbent uh, Congressman Rob Whitman on last week, and he laid some pretty heavy claims at your feet, one of them being that um, you want to defund the military. And I, I wanted to hear, um, I wanted to hear from you what your thoughts on that are, um, especially military spending. So we want to hear directly from yeah, you. Yeah, that was actually going to be my question. We want to provide you yeah, the opportunity no, look, to, to rebut. I, you know, I, I, he, he's a nice gentleman. I, I've got no personal animosity towards him. I, I, I've seen the way, uh, you know, he, I, I love the way he talks about his wife. You can tell he's gaga over his wife after all these years. I think it's a beautiful thing. And, you know, my wife and I are married uh, almost 13 years now that I, I hope that we, we continue to have that kind of relationship. So I, I certainly admire him for that. You know, on, on these policy issues, though, on something like that claim, I would love to see him cite where I said that, because it's one thing to uh, attribute it to me and make me depend a position I hold. Uh, but I, I just don't, don't think it's becoming of a congressman to make that kind of a statement. Um, that's simply not true. Um, what I have said um, and I, what I will continue to defend is that um, multiple studies have shown that there is immense waste, fraud, and abuse. A recent study showed $125 billion of waste, fraud, and abuse um, in the military. Now, I don't know anybody, liberal or conservative, who thinks that's a good idea. Um, I, I think that just like we're audited for our taxes, just like corporations are audited, we should audit the military to make sure that our tax dollars are being spent in the best possible manner. You know, you mentioned the VA a moment ago, um, the folks at the VA are some of the most incredible, thoughtful, hardworking people I know. It is inconceivable to me that we can have, you know, the $750 billion military budget and decide that once our soldiers come home and become veterans, that's no longer our worry. That's gonna be a separate budget altogether. Um, the VA needs to be funded better. Um, and, 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 I, and what I've argued is that I think it's a disgrace. And, I, and again, I challenge you guys to, to tell me I'm wrong here. Um, I think it's a disgrace. And, and I say this as somebody who grew up in a military family that was on food stamps. I think it's a disgrace that we have a massive military budget and one in five of our military families in Virginia are on food stamps. That doesn't make any sense to me. Where's all that money going if our service members, the people put in their lives on the line to protect our country, just like my brother did during the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, what are our priorities as a country if they're the ones that are going hungry? So that's what I've talked about. And that I will continue to defend because I, I don't think you can give lip service and say, you know, I support our troops and, and then look the other way when they're starving. I think that's, that's hypocritical and I'm getting emotional about this because I've been there before when my brother was a Marine, I uh, was an active duty Marine and it's painful for me to see you know, we have our Compassion Through Action initiative for our campaign where we're providing food and water to folks who are struggling. And it's painful for me to see members of our service, of our armed forces having to ask for us to, to help them. And we help them because it's the right thing to do. But they shouldn't have to, uh, to, to rely on food stamps or charity. They should be provided for because of the amazing work they're, that they're doing. And, and, and that's, that's the position I have in this space. Wow. Yeah, I, I mean, it's and like I think you said, I don't I don't think that's a necessarily liberal or conservative view. I think, you know, I mean, 
Matt and I, we're, we're both fiscal conservatives. We want to know where our tax dollars are being spent. Yep. Um, and I think there's nothing wrong with, with coming out and saying that departments need to be audited. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's a, I think that's a very different, I, th I think what you're asking for is actual common sense and making sure accountability. accountability. I think there's nothing wrong with that. One of the other things is, is he talked about that you just, and he made this kind of just flat statement and he didn't cite where you said it and he didn't. And, and I was kind of like, okay, we want to ask him this question about the defund the police question. So yeah. we want to, we want to get you on record about that and kind of talk to us. What, what's your thoughts on this whole movement to um, about police in this country? Well, you know, we, and we talked about this at our first debate as well. And, you know, I, I encourage those who have broadband internet access to go and listen to it because uh, I, I thought that was very instructive. And afterwards I had several sheriffs and police chiefs call me and, and say thank you that was that was really refreshing look I, i've been working on criminal justice reform issues for over a decade i was a prison chaplain for four years i've called and spoken to almost every single sheriff in our district republican independent democrat commonwealth attorneys and the conversations that i've had with them and i mean the meaningful face-to-face -face, over a cup of coffee over breakfast conversations have been that we are overwhelmed um, we are trained to provide support when there is a violent crime happening, and that, that's what we do best. That, you know, we protect and we serve when there's a murder, when there's a rape, a robbery, something horrible like that happening. Um, that's what we're good at. But um, we've also been asked to address all the addiction issues. We're not trained for that. We've been addressed to, uh, asked to address homelessness and mental health issues. And if a kid is acting up in school, address those issues. And if there's a cat stuck in a tree, they call us to get the cat down from that darn tree. And, and it, it gets, I mean, I see you laughing because it's, it's become so ridiculous. And I had one sheriff say to me that, you know, uh, I, I can get why people are upset when, when thing, you know, when police violence happens. It's, you know, it's not that cops are bad guys. It's that when you ask someone to do something that they haven't been given the tools to do, they're going to do the best they can but sometimes the best they can just isn't good enough because they're not trained for it. And so my whole position on this has been that we need to make sure that our tax dollars reflect the needs of society as effectively as possible. Because what is also happening is that folks in our, you know, you mentioned that we're struggling with an opioid epidemic. You know, folks who are struggling, they need an addiction expert, addiction counselor to help them. They don't need somebody with a firearm. People who have mental health issues. You know, Marcus Davis Peters was, was an African-American teacher who was having a mental health crisis, was naked, got in a car accident, naked and unarmed, was shot to death by law enforcement, right? I have to believe that that could have ended a different way with a mental health professional. And so we have two injustices happening. One, we're putting so much of a burden on law enforcement that they are struggling in their own mental health. They're not able to fulfill their requirements the way they're supposed to. And then we're putting a massive burden on society because they need support with mental health counselors and with school counselors and with, uh, with increased teacher pay and with addiction, uh, addiction experts. And they're told you're going to get a law enforcement officer with a firearm who doesn't necessarily have that training in the first place. And so in my conversations, I've said we need to hire more mental health professionals and we need to deploy them and have law enforcement be the backup, not the first order of contact. 
um, that would not only ensure that law enforcement is more able to focus on the things that they're best trained to do, it would also ensure that the community in need is able to get the support that they need. Somehow, and, and by the way, I, I want to emphasize again, this has been uh, co uh, a conversation I've had with multiple uh, police chiefs and sheriffs. Uh, and, and there's a reason why, the, quote, defund the police isn't even on the website, because I don't think that really captures what we're trying to accomplish. So everything I've described, somehow my opponent took that to mean I want to defund and abolish the police. And again, like I'm trying to come at this from a, a position not as a Republican or Democrat, but how do we just help our communities get better? And, and when someone makes that kind of a wild allegation, I think it, 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 it creates more uh, confusion and fear and distrust and it doesn't actually move the ball forward to help our society. So, so that's my view. That's and I love that distinction because unfortunately I believe there are some, if you look on you know, uh, the left, at least the left of Twitter, it's very much trending. They, there are some that, you know, I, I guess, like base left voters that are like, no, defund, abolish. And you're coming at it from, no, because a lot of the, a lot of the um, problems are a lot of our police officers are not paid enough. And then they are asked to take on yeah. enormous burden. Well, just, you I know, not unlike teachers. Kasim, I'll tell you this. In Roanoke City, where I, I live in Roanoke City, and we ask our police officers straight out of the academy to come and work for our police department for $32,000 a year. Impossible. And they're getting shot at. <laughs> let's let's, let's, let's oh. start with they're getting shot at. Um, they are breaking up DV calls, they are, you know, being mental health counselors. And, and I think that's one thing that, and at the same time, you know, there's, I, I, I mean, I'll be the first to say it. Sometimes there is a little bit, we need to also, just like we do with the military, we need to audit the spending that the police departments do have. Because do I really think my little county sheriff's office needs a tank? Probably not. <laughs> exactly. But they could probably use a mental health counselor to help talk through a, a mental health situation. So, Matt, you're speaking my language. You're speaking exactly my language. I mean, there's three counties in the first district where the law enforcement is paid below a living wage. And, and it's just, it's inconceivable to me. It's immoral to me that um, we're allowing that to continue. This is why I support the HEROES Act. And this is a point of contention between myself and my opponent. I support the HEROES Act because it allocated not only $5 billion for broadband internet, by the way, but $900 billion for local and state governments to make sure that law enforcement can get this kind of support that they need. And hey, look, if we want a law enforcement officer to handle mental health issues, let's send them to college, get a degree in mental health crisis management, and then have them address those issues. And they probably don't need the firearm either because the whole point is to de-escalate the violence. And if you speak to mental health counselors, they will tell you that you don't need a firearm for this. You can find better ways and then have law enforcement be the backup. We're not cutting them out of the equation. We're just saying that if, 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 you, if, you, if you need someone who can address these mental health issues, let's get somebody trained in there. And, and at the end of the day, what that's gonna do is that's gonna lower the number of uh, police violence in, in incidents significantly. And we're already seeing that around the country with those uh, municipalities that are adopting this model. It's going to make sure law enforcement is safer. I want nothing more 
and every law enforcement officer to come home safe and sound. And again, I say this as a, as a brother of a Marine who knows what it's like to have somebody in the armed forces during wartime, not knowing if they're gonna come home safe and sound. Uh, I don't want anyone to go through that pain. And it's gonna make our community safer. It'll, it'll lower crime overall and law enforcement and communities will have more trust with one another. And, and I wanna emphasize again, and guys, keep me honest on this. I, you guys, you're two honest, good looking guys. Keep me honest on this. Well, I I don't see that as a Republican or a Democrat issue. I really see that as a bipartisan human issue that we can work together on. Well, I think that I think that's one of the big things that that like, you know, I'll be proud to say that I love our police departments and I love our military. But I, I think the one thing that really gets me is like they want to spend money on things like making sure they have a Humvee or a tank, but at the same time we can't pay our cops enough. Yeah, and I'm kind of like, okay, we well, got to do something. And I mean, in Kassam, there's there's rural voters where I actually think, once again, for example, uh, Second Amendment folks, right, yep. where that is one of their like top three issues, yep. are going to keep buying guns if they keep seeing tanks roll down the street, nice. because yes. it is it's it's government intimidation. So I think conservatives and you know because there's a libertarian strain in the you know Republican Party. Yeah, I think this is an issue that yep. we can work together on, especially you know. Well, and, and I, every single, uh, go ahead, Matt. Go ahead. I just think that's one of the big things about this, this movement that gets mossed in the melee is like that we don't. I think there's so much more to it than just catchphrases, and I think that's all politics. Amen. Amen. And Cosman, and Matt, I'm sure you you both agree with this. There are people on the left and the right that say it's either Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, pick a side. Yeah. And that's when it's both. It's yeah. it's total crap to be you can be it's a false you, choice. You you don't you don't have to be one or the other. You can believe that I think it's one of those things where you can believe that black lives do matter and at the same time you can say I support a police officer's, you know, and, and I, I think uh, it drives me crazy. No, Matt, Matt well said. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's Star Wars, right? It's only Sith speak in absolutes, right? It's uh, <laughs> the Jedi. Very good <laughs> quote. <laughs> now, now you've won me over. I love Star Wars. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, speaking of those, those, those military vehicles, like, you know how much they cost to maintain? I mean, they cost a ton of money to maintain. That's more money that could be, you know, used for teachers, for, for law enforcement salaries, uh, for, for training, and, and you know, all the real studies show, it doesn't actually make anyone safer. It doesn't make law enforcement safer, because to your point, Mike, um, folks can just get more firearms, and they just get more armed to the teeth because they don't want tyrannical government. I mean, so we really gotta you know, manage these relationships by having dialogues and building that trust, and I think that happens by making sure our tax dollars are spent getting police the support they need, training the professionals they need, that society needs to address the, the illnesses that they're struggling with. So Kasim, I've got to ask, because we've asked you some really tough questions. Now I'm going yeah. to ask you a super tough question. Um, favorite Star Wars movie and why? You know what? I, I will die on this hill. I, I love Rogue One. Rogue One was excellent. Wow. Yeah, it's not even in the main, like, I just love it because- That's a hot take. Because I will say, I hated the whole movie except for when Darth Vader showed up. That was nice. And wiped everybody out. I was like, oh God. And then the movie ended. That was wild. No, the reason why I love Rogue One so much is because it's it's got um, the father-daughter relationship. And like, I got my daughter now. And so I kind of think about that. 
but it also fills probably like the biggest plot hole in the Star Wars series as well, right? Like there's like this, this one, you know, it, it explains how that one defect was actually by design and, and it, it answers a question that we suffered a heavy loss to get this data. So it, it, it was a really, really cool thing. I, 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 I liked it a lot. I enjoyed it's that. one of the better prequels, I guess, because technically it is. I'm an episode three guy. Oh, God, Mike, don't ever admit Oh, yeah. Don't even that. I'm sure, guys, the best lightsaber fights are in good. that movie, that hands good. down. Yeah, it was good. It's great because now uh, we just watched episode three of my 11-year-old like a week ago, and he and I played Mario Kart every night. And every time I win, I'm like, you were supposed to be the chosen one, and you <laughs> lost. <laughs> That's great. Uh, That's so, and this is the thing that I wonder, you know, I don't know. I love, I love Empire. I just think Empire was just such a beautiful story. I think Empire Strikes Back is one, one of the one of the best Star Wars movies. Um, but we can all can we all just hate on Last Jedi and how terrible it was? Like, well, I would say that whole last trilogy owes the prequels an apology. <laughs> I don't know the prequels. Like, I grew up on those, and I remember like sitting in a theater in nineteen ninety nine watching. Yep. you know. Fan of yeah. Venice, and I was like, "This is the greatest thing ever!" And now I'm an adult, and they're like, "God, these are." Yeah, but the Darth Maul fight is one is arguably the best lightsaber fight. The Darth Maul fight was really good. You know I, what I'm really excited about is the the, the reboot. I, I'm curious to see where they take it. Like the whole new trilogy that they're going to be coming out with in a couple of years. I'm really curious to. The Mandalorian. To yes. Yes. You, now, Kasim, are you a Mandalorian person? Do you like the Mandalorian? So, so I'm. It, it got big when I started running for office, so I haven't had a chance to dive into it uh, in, in full detail. But the, the bits I've seen are, I've enjoyed. Uh, just, just to be honest about it, I've enjoyed. And I, I can't wait to watch more of it once the selection's over. Well, because um, we always ask people what they're watching on Netflix right now, but you probably don't have time to watch Netflix. Right? No, I, I, I had um, uh, a health issue a few weeks ago for which I w was bedridden for a couple of days. I mean, not like I was in any kind of danger, but the doctor's like, you got to just let, let your body heal. And so I did binge watch Space Force, which was pretty funny. I don't know if you guys have seen that yet. <laughs> is that yeah. the one with Steve Carell? Where it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it was pretty good. I enjoyed it. Um, okay. So I, I'm glad we've got a fellow Star Wars person. Yes. Oh, you kidding? I, I love Star Wars. Lord of the Rings, too. I, I absolutely adore Lord of the Rings. Um, I, uh, I, I think I've probably seen the trilogy, like, I don't know, seven, eight times, uh, you know, you got to watch it with different people and just, you know, make commentary based on that. You pick up new things every now and then as well, too. So I will, I will say, I wish our Congress looked like the Galactic Senate. Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> that's, that's always <laughs> been a little button and like fly out into it. Oh yeah. Wouldn't that be awesome? You know, Mitch McConnell, Nancy Pelosi bumping. Maybe the 217th Congress will do that. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Well, uh, we've had a great time having you on today. I know that um, you've, you've still got a, a little bit left of Labor Day, so we don't want to yes. take all of it. Um, but we've had a great time having you on and just um, we want folks to know where they can reach out to your campaign at. So where, where are you at on social media? So everybody can find you. Just at, at my name, Kasim Rashid, Q-A-S-I-M-R-A-S-H-I-D. Kasim rhymes with awesome. That's my story. I'm sticking okay. to it. 
Um, so uh, uh, Kasim Rashid and, um, and, and you know, before I go, I, I didn't share my, my minor Virginia Tech story. Yes, so, yes. we all love Blacksburg stories and we will take them. It, it's, it's, it's definitely a minor story. I've had the privilege of being invited to speak there to the student body, it was a lot of fun. But I was talking to, to my, my, my dad um, and he told me that when he was uh, a young man of 26, 27, um, he's, he's an imam and two of his congregants were professors at Virginia Tech. They were physics professors at Virginia Tech. And so he would actually go out there uh, way back in the 70s and hang out with these physics professors and, and, and just have like, you know, educational sessions and interfaith dialogues out there with the community out there. And even showed me some of the newspaper articles published from way back when, back, you know, nearly 50 years ago. And so uh, obviously I never went there, but I just, I find it kind of endearing, right? That, uh, that my old man was there way before I was born. And uh, now all these years later, I'm here in Virginia in the same state he was. So I, I just find that kind of you know, sentimental. Well, the thing about, the thing about pe people don't understand about Blacksburg, it's such an open community and, and very like open and loving. And so it, it's a great place to be. So yeah. um, I'm hoping for, we start playing college football in two weeks and I want it so bad. Just please, God, I'll do anything for college football. Uh, I don't know if you're a college football, college basketball. You know, I, it's, it's funny. I was, when I got married, um, I was the biggest sports junkie you could imagine. Everything. I mean, you name it. I, I in fact, my, my, my claim to fame is the 2008 NBA finals or NBA playoffs, sorry. I correctly predicted every single playoff series and predicted that the Celtics would win in six. Um, you and put I money that, down? I, huh? You put money down? No, I'm, I'm not a gambling man, but it, it, ah! was, <laughs> it, was, it was me and my high school buddies, but I predicted every single series correctly. I picked like the actual win-loss correctly in three or four of them, and then the finals I, I predicted Celtics in six. And so that's how attuned I was. You, you get married, you start to have kids, you start to, you know, have to deal with things like running for office and just, you know, priorities shift. But I, I still love playing ball. If, if you guys are on Twitter, I, uh, I sent some smack talk to Dr. Cameron Webb today. We um, saw that. We uh, saw, we saw. Um, you better be ready, you know, to come out of retirement. <laughs> I'm ready, I'm ready. So, so I'm easy to find on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Kasim Rashid. If you want to get involved with our campaign, uh, just shoot us a note, contact at rashidforva.com. And look, my, my final real message to folks is, you know, my whole life's been focused on bringing people together. Um, I, I, I see it as a moment of pride for me that I get death threats from ISIS and the Taliban because I speak up for persecuted Christians. Um, and I get death threats from white supremacists because I speak up for immigrants uh, and, and folks who are marginalized. You must be doing something right, right? You know, if I'm taking off the extremists, on the left and the right, then I gotta be doing something something right, you know? What was the old line from that episode? So I'm a West Wing junkie. And um, the line that the guy said to Charlie, um, who was the president's body man, he's like, they're shooting at you, so you must be doing something right. Yeah. No, there, there you go. And so, and so my, my commitment, my promise to folks is that um, if and God willing, when I'm elected, you know, I'm gonna be just as, as accessible as I am right now, just as available regular town halls, in person, once the pandemic subsides. Uh, because at the end of the day, public service should be about being there for the people. There's a reason why we don't take a single penny in corporate PAC money, because I don't even want there to be a doubt 
on who I'm accountable to. And the love and compassion that I've received from folks in the first district, and I don't just mean from progressives, but from conservatives, uh, has been just overwhelming and beautiful. And I'm grateful and I love you guys. And I hope to come back on this show and, and chat more once we, uh, once we get through this election. You are welcome anytime. Sounds good. We All right, awesome. We appreciate everyone listening in today. We don't have next week's episode planned just yet, but we will find you a very interesting guest. You just have to watch. Um, but we appreciate Qasem Rashid for coming on today. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And come on, Steve.